from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. So, hey, everybody, welcome to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is Jonathan Small, and I am the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. My guest today is Shannon Walters, who is the founder of Light Sky Farms, which is a Michigan cannabis brand that has received over 35 High Times Cannabis Awards. That's very impressive, including two in 2021 alone. And Shannon has a really interesting story, and it's why I want to bring him on the show He was a semi-pro skateboarder and snowboarder who suffered numerous broken bones and injuries, which led to an addiction to opiates and cannabis really saved his life. He is also an expert winemaker and vineyard tender and has brought that skill set to his cannabis endeavors. So there's so much to talk about here. Shannon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you to be here, man. So let's a little backstory here, because it sounds like where you are now is so informed by where you came from. But Talk a little bit about your your childhood and sort of what got you into skateboarding and then all that kind of stuff. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so sort of a punk-ass kid, you know, that kind of story. Didn't do well in school. Sort of individual sport person wasn't really into like football teams or any of that business. So skateboarding, punk rock, that lifestyle, that the 80s was a sort of a time-changing. In Michigan, right? Yeah, Michigan and everywhere, really. Skateboarding, snowboarding, all that stuff taking off. becoming respected as a as a real sport like it's in the olympics and stuff now yeah. but anyway so i mostly skateboarded and snowboarded and didn't go to school much and got pretty good at it and back in those days it wasn't quite as complicated as today but we used to jump school buses and stuff like that and that led to lots of injuries broken legs arms collarbones surgeries and then those sort of things led to uh morphine and then that led to well now i want to get high all the time so that lifestyle went on for a while, but I was a functioning, performing addict, I guess you could say. And when you say want to get high all the time, you're not talking about getting high on cannabis. You're talking about getting high on op- on the opiates and the medicine. For sure. Opiates and cannabis and brews. Okay, everything. You got to get the three-way. Yeah. But I was a highly functioning guy. And so I went, during that time, I ended up becoming a chef at a restaurant. And that led to sort of an appreciation for the finer things, like good food, good wine, things that are pretty well presented, um, well done, the whole round experience with premium, the premium, you know, experience. So that led to a winemaking career that, um, I kind of applied that sort of mentality to and try to just super clean everything just on point as far as how you get from a grape to a bottle of wine that is intact, rightly correct. And where was this? Was this in Northern California? It was in Michigan. Michigan has a small wine region on the West side of the state by the lake. It's a temperate zone by the lake. Very slip a sliver to be able to grow vinifera grapes here it's like uh, an alsatian type of atmosphere so we do some great red uh great white wines sparkling wines and in my opinion the occasional great red wine but so anyways i learned how to grow grapes right manage vineyards at scale and also make wines at scale i made wines for like 12 different wineries and at one time i built a bunch of wineries and the, all the things that go with that right like the whole agricultural how do you grow weed or strawberries or whatever, get it to the shelf, like as good as it can be. So then during that time I was growing weed, right? So then we got into the 2008 era-ish um, where we had um, medical, we could be caregivers. So I was like, yeah, let's do that. Definitely. During that time I was creating strains that I tried to like, 
the entourage effect sort of thing, like try to make a strain that's going to give me what I need and not take Oxycontin. You know what I'm saying? So it was sort of an evolution. It was a long evolution in that, in that way, but um, I did that. So you were growing for yourself at first. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm 50 years old and I started growing weed in sixth grade and I've been doing it the whole time, but not as like at scale or trying to make a business out of it outside of like slinging a couple bags here and there. But when I, when I mean, aside from just growing weed by yourself, what I also mean is that you were growing the kind of weed that would help, that would be medicine for you personally, not just for the world. Right. Yep. It's a lot of the reasons that there's so many CBD trophies for our light sky farms was because I was, I was growing CBD before it was cool. Right. And I was trying to blend it into cookie strains or things that were modern examples of gorgeous mugs and that bag appeal, that smell, but then that effect, that sort of stuff blends together and makes it so that your muscles don't hurt so that you're not craving so bad in your head and all these things to sleep better sort of stuff. So did you find this cannabis that you were growing for yourself was able to wean you off of the opiates? Cause it's hard. Once you're addicted to opiates, we know it's a battle. Yeah, definitely. I don't take, I don't take pills anymore. And I hadn't since I started really doing this work back in like 2008. It was probably a ooh, 15, 18 year run of that sort of lifestyle, but it's kind of awkward talking about it, but <laughs> sorry. That's <laughs> no, cool. I mean, I mean, we're here to try to help teach people this stuff. You know? I'm not embarrassed about it. Um, it's just, that shit, shit happens. I was highly functioning. I ran hundreds of thousands of plants and people and crew and made world, world why we would crush the Germans at making Riesling at their own game at the, on the world stage, on the world level. So sometimes you don't know what you're dealing with if they're on whatever, right? Because they're highly functional. Yeah. And that's part of the problem is that, you know, I think we just think of opioid addiction as, you know, people like, you know, I don't know, wallowing in an alley yeah, somewhere. Yeah. You laying know, around on a park bench. Laying around on a park bench. And of course, some people, but the, the highly functioning ones are the most, because they're hidden in a way. People don't even know that they're they're addicts. So there's way more of that than there is on the on the park bench. I'm going to tell you that right now. So, you know, if you look at doctors and lawyers and stuff, you don't know. And it's okay. Like, I don't think like it's nobody's business if you ask me, but I'm trying to relate a story that you're asking me about how I can Well, I think it's the only reason I'm digging in tell me if I get too personal is the only reason I'm digging into it is because um, I think so many people could benefit from hearing a story of somebody who was able to kick that habit and then become very successful. Being like also having children during that time helped with that too. It's not like the one bullet and done cure for anything, right? You've got to be motivated and stuff and just being like putting your foot down to, you know, like, fuck this, this is bullshit. Do you think you can become a weed addict? I don't think like physically I'm not, you're not going to come off of it and die or anything, you know, but I mean, sure. I, I wake up in the morning and get high and go about the day. And I would probably be ants, way antsier than I am and way more annoying probably, but these guys are laughing at me, but I think not. Yeah. Not being, a, it's almost like the same as being a coffee addict or something. It's something you might need in your life. I think coffee is more addictive for sure. Caffeine is a, quite, quite the substance in itself, but. THC, CBD, and CBN, and all that, those compounds. I don't know. I don't think so, but I'm not a scientist or a doctor. So, all right, let's talk about your transition, though, from being this wine expert to being a cannabis expert. It was, and you said you've been growing your whole life practically. So it was not new to you. And when did you decide to just transition from one profession to another? Well, I had uh, contract disputes with owners of wineries that I would build, things like that. So the bottom line with that was, um, I just got fucking sick of it. I was like, I'm done. I'm going to keep the trophies this time. I'm going to market a brand. I'm going to build a brand and I'm going to try to get in the game. I don't have a million 
$30 million to build a facility. This emerging economic windfall of marijuana becoming legal and stuff. I wanted a piece of the table. So I said, I'm going to use my winemaking and agricultural talents, apply them to marijuana, do it myself, and try to have something that I can sell, keep a piece of, and you know, continue to expand my place at the table, basically. What were some of the things you learned as a winemaker that you have carried on to cannabis? Like I hear that analogy a lot about, you know, they're two agricultural crops, but there must be similarities. And and what, what did you find that you were able to kind of bring? You obviously brought something very valuable to cannabis because of all these awards you've Yeah, it was um the sort of a mentality that I touched on earlier, but so terpenes, that little code word, that little jingle word that everybody uses these days, which is a fact. Everything, everything smell and taste is based on, on those compounds. Um, but being able to try to grow those substances in a way that you can preserve them through process to the end product, trying to explain it without going way off. <laughs> it's okay. It's it's interesting. Yeah. The, the thing that set set it apart, my brand, I think in particular, and, and I, same within wine, I was trying to like do good work, but also I want to raise the bar everywhere. So everybody has an experience that's better than the than last year, 10 years ago. And so those sort of intentions, I think were are what helped people see the the products that I was making and they just spoke for themselves, right? They were like, yeah, this is, this is good shit. So I went about the business of growing weed in a way, handling it in a way once it's harvested and processing it through the, that handling experience and you know that amount of time to try and keep that terpene integrity, varietal expression intact so that what you're getting is a really good representation of the plant you just walked by, brushed up against and now your whole car smells because you got resin all over you. You think THC is overrated as a compound? I mean, people are so fixated on THC content and they want the most bang for their buck, et cetera. But do you think it's become almost like too overrated? Well, it's such a new experience for a lot of people. And a lot of people just gauge that number on like an alcohol base, you know, the 40 proof or the 60 proof. And I want the 60 stuff because I'm going to get more fucked up or whatever. So that like mentality is something that will get changed slowly over time. I'm sure probably never go away. Yeah. Having a, a multitude of compounds in your and your flower is going to give you a much more personal experience, I think. And that's why I made all those CBD strains that were bred with THC strains. We boost cookie, for example, has won multiple awards at high times, first place, second place, third place, multiple categories. And that was on purpose. You know, we wanted to make stuff that is going to have a great impact on your day. So yeah, THC, it sucks that the sliding scale to buy weed, sometimes how much THC is in it. Well, what the total you know, what's the total and what are those compounds and how much of them are there is how I look at if I'm going to look at a, you know, a lab test, that's more impressive to me than 32%. Although 32% THC is great. If you're after a high, if you're after like a high percentage, it's some concentrates. So do you think that's a secret of your success is that the terpene profile being very focused on that and figuring out? Definitely that. And definitely like this cleanliness in general, like we get lab results back and there aren't bugs and they'll be involved in other stuff like that. And just the whole quality of the experience. Back when I started, things were really a lot simpler, but we tried to put together a, a good looking package that went with the good looking weed and, and have a lab result that indicates that it is clean. And that's before you had to do that. So do you think people are surprised that this kind of this level of quality weed is coming out of Western Michigan? and not like Humboldt County and that some of the more sort of famous weep. Do you get people being like, this is from Michigan? Yeah, for sure. And that's cool. I like that because they're going to go talk about that. And um, my friends in California always make fun of uh, fun of me 
you guys can't grow weed there, but you guys can't grow weed out there either. Let's go. <laughs> it's a east, east, west, midwest, west coast rivalry. That's it. But I mean, we're growing good weed all around the world, all around the country. Um, we in particular with people. So it isn't quite as like, let's see, regionally based. Unless you're talking about outside, you're talking about in a warehouse, you know, warehouses, the warehouse is how it's run and all that stuff. But we're not, not talking about like a regionally based, like Chardonnay from California, Michigan, Florida, God forbid, or something like that. Yeah, people are surprised and good. Here we are. You've been in the industry now a while. Are you optimistic about like what's happening? Or are you a little concerned that maybe like the small guys are going to get kind of shut out by the big guys coming in, like the big MSOs and stuff as a kind of legacy guy? What, what's your take on all that? Yeah, it's concerning. And then um, it's hard to get a seat at that table at any industry. Sure. You know what I mean? I mean, big guys come in and buy little guys all the time. The microbrew thing went nuts and now the big guys are trying to gobble them up and consolidate them. And that's sort of the nature of the beast. Unfortunately, you got to be smart if you're going to be trying to stay in business in any business and not get eaten. So yeah, I think I wish things would have gone differently in Michigan in particular, because that's what I kind of know about as far as the legislation and stuff that happens with caregivers and their chances to get at the table like I did. Right. So I created a brand and it was sketchy as you know what I mean? It was scary. You get the DEA and the, and the cops and the local narcotics agency banging on your door, trying to follow the rules. Same time, shouldn't be marketing a brand. You're not supposed to be doing these things. So I tried to do it within the, the boundaries of the law. And what would be really nice is if you know, the state wouldn't try to shut down these caregivers, but get how the thing was written, but then how it got manipulated. And it was, uh, we were, as caregivers, we were supposed to be able to sell our overages to dispensaries and they would have to have testing and proof of cleanliness and all that business and all that as, as an expense. But in that way, you could have you could create this brand and this brand following and it be recognized to the general public in a way that wasn't going to be as scary and not going to get your ass thrown in jail because you were going to be allowed to do it in a way smaller, small scale too, you know, but, and then hopefully maybe partner up with a bigger guy, get your brand going like I tried to do or be successful on your own and not have to get a part. It's all quite the windy little road on how you get there. But right now they're trying to take away the 72 plant caregiver thing in Michigan because big corporate cannabis has bought lobbyists and they spent a lot of money doing it. Explain that the 72 plant thing. Explain that for those who are not in Michigan. So in Michigan, you're a caregiver and you can have 12 plants yourself. And then you can have five patients and you can have 12 plants. So you can have 72 plants total in your locked facility, right? And um, some of the problems with that system where they were like, well, you can only have 15 ounces, we call it a Michigan pound, 15 ounces of weed on hand. You got 72 plants. At some point, you're going to have more than 15 ounces of weed. Otherwise, you're definitely not successful. How I tried to mitigate that back in the day was I tried to have a rotating garden. So I had to like only bring it down so much a day. And that's a total pain in the ass, right? That's a lot of job. Uh, so they're trying to take that, that thing away. They're trying to take away processing. So we would do water hash or we would do BHO. Or we would do shit. Even rolling a joint, probably, they consider processing. Getting the key out of your tray. Like, so they're trying to take that away, too, and make it illegal. Which will, one, the cops will be grabbed because they can bust people for stuff again and make money in that way. Not have as hard of a time fighting in court. Two, corporate cannabis will own it. And you won't have a lot of choices as an individual. And um, I'm down for variety and choices, right? So it would be nice if money didn't buy these sorts of things, but it does. And there's a naughty list in the state of people that are being boycotted for those actions. And I'm not on that. I support the little guy, man, because I am the little guy. Nobody gave me any of this. And has been a, you've got to claw your way. Yeah. Would you say this is the hardest business you've ever been in? You coming from the wine industry? Is this? Yeah, it's kind of a complicated question, but one of the 
trying to think about how to put this. Like I thought regulation in the wine industry was ridiculous that I had to deal with. And I made other people do the paperwork on that, you know, but this industry, such a total burden because they are scared of weed because of the decades of propaganda, right? The powers that be or whatever is out there making this crazy. It's like you're handling um, plutonium or something. And it's, it's not. <laughs> I mean, we got taxation that's crippling, right? The margins are thin. You'd build a $30 million facility. You think you get that back quick? Plus, you got to pay them all the taxes and buy toilet paper for everybody. The list of things that eat at the margins is so long now in regulated cannabis, not to mention like legal compliance. I love compliance. Don't tell me what to do. You know? Right. So the reason you, you put compliance in, in air quotes is because why? Because it's they say it sounds like you have to be in compliance. You have to every square inch of this facility is being monitored by cameras. It has to be held off campus for a certain amount of days. That's an expense, right? To be compliant, you have to have a compliance officer who knows all the rules inside and out. And they're changing all the time because the people at government are constantly making new laws and rules because I don't know, they love laws and rules, I guess. So I say compliance because I'm not a very compliant guy. (laughs) Not personally, but when it comes to your cannabis, you're compliant. That's for sure. Yes, for sure. Professionalism level to, to all this stuff, right? Do you think it will change if it becomes nationally legal? I don't like it. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Yes, I'm compliant. Do I like it? Do I like not being able to get as much weed out of here as I want to go give away to rep the brand easily? Do I want that to be easy? If not. Do you think it would be easier if it was nationally legal? And you got to put your license on license plate down in the paperwork. Where you're going? What's your agenda? What's your itinerary? Who are you giving it to? What's their license plate number? Like, ridiculous. Do you think that if it, if we were nationally legal, you would have to deal with these kinds of issues? Or you think no matter what, as long as government's involved? National legalization is would be great and bad, right? Because then we could transport across state borders if we were Budweiser, right? Or a small winery ship into California. And you could expand your brands in that way. That would be very beneficial. But then when the feds get involved, now that we're going to have more layers of complication, compliance, expense, bullshit, really. More laws, more rules, more ways to get in trouble, more ways for them to manipulate everything in their favor. Okay, so if I'm a, a listener to this podcast and I'm thinking about getting into the growing part of the business, and what would be your, your sage wisdom as somebody who's done this successfully? Don't do it. <laughs> I'll tell them it's not easy. It's not, this isn't a plan you see it out put a seed in the ground outside like the 70s and you get some weed and you can make some money. It's like almost, it's like every other business. It's a lot of paper and a lot of um, not fun stuff. Is The playing field is is getting saturated with huge players that are are building walls that make it hard for entry level people. The, the, the race to the bottom on pricing because of corporate interests and mass mid-grade circulation of okay stuff, driving the price down makes it hard to get what it costs to make a premium product. So when people talk, look at me and they go, man, your shit's expensive. I go, man, really good bourbon's expensive too. Try to make comparisons like, yeah, really good top shelf anything is expensive because it costs more to do that because it is not, there's mid-grade points that I wouldn't put up with. Sure, there's a market and a level for all, there's a shelf space for trim doobies that are a buck and fucking $200 magars that are stuffed with the dankest tank and wrapped in gold. So figuring out what niche you want and what shelf space you want to be on, but what level, all that business fix. You got to have a business plan if you're going to get a good pitch now, you know, and, and some investment money. Because if you don't have your own money, you're not going to make it legally, probably the foundation investment to get into the industry, unfortunately. It sounds hard and yet you keep at it. 
So there must be something about it that you love. Definitely love it. It is hard. I'm, I'm not a quitter. I don't give up. So that's one thing. You've got to have a got to have a mentality of fight for survival. Throw me in a pit. I'm going to claw claw my way out. Not sit down there and die. I think there's a lot of determination. You've got to have some raw talent. Certainly, if you're not in the, if you've never grown a tomato before, I wouldn't try to get into growing weed. Get into the transport. There's a, there's a place at the table for everybody. Artists, marketing, transportation, security, network people that. The computer stuff. I tell my daughters, where do you want to be? What do you want to do? I can get you a place at the table. You don't have to grow weed, smoke weed, you know, whatever. What do you want to do? You want to, you want to be a designer? You want to go out there and be a salesperson? You want to, there's all kinds of places to be. Being the guy that's growing it is one of the hardest. All right. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. That was fun, man. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, the brand is Light Sky Farms. If people want to find out more about your product, is there a website, lightskyfarms.com? Is that where should they go? So we're working on building all that stuff from my like very raw, crappy site that I had. And it was that way on purpose because I didn't really want it to look like I was selling anything or any of that. So they can go to Light Sky Farms account to follow on Instagram to follow like the daily goings on at the facility here. My founder's account is account is Lightstay Farms 231, where you can see my daily antics <laughs> or weekly or whenever I decide to post. So we got a lot of stuff coming out. And that way we just hired a marketing staff that's going to build a website, get like the glossy liter- literature out, get the thing being the professional um, entity that it should be. This facility has only been licensed like what, less than six months. And it's a brand new everything. And then scaling up my one person show to 65 people now here. So we'll, we'll be there. All right. Well, best of luck to you. And there's like a light sky farms at Gmail or something. Lightskyfarms.com. I made that. I don't even know. And it's super basic and simple, but it's going to be great. And it's going to be tied into sales distribution, like probably the LeafLink stuff, you know, the way that people get their cannabis consumption information. We're getting there. All right. Well, thank you again. And uh, we'll talk soon. And best of luck. I hope so, man. All right. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Have a nice day. You too. Thank you for listening to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, you can go to greenentrepreneur.com. Check out our magazine on newsstands everywhere. Check out our Instagram at Green Entrepreneur. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all other social media feeds. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more from me, Jonathan Small, check out my other podcast, Write About Now, that's W-R-I-T-E, to get some in-depth interviews into the lives and stories of successful writers, how they got there, what they learned, and what you need to succeed. That's writeaboutnowmedia.com. Until next episode, we'll THC you later.